Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us through glory and virtue, that through these or by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we come to focus upon your word, to think about what you have revealed to us, that we might come to a greater understanding of how we are to think and how we are to reflect about life and the challenges and issues of life, that we might fulfill that which we desire, which is to glorify you with everything in our lives. Father, we are mindful today as we prepare to observe Memorial Day tomorrow that the freedom that we have in this nation politically was purchased on the battlefield, uh, the many battlefields from the war for independence through recent conflicts in the Middle East. But Father, ultimately our real freedom, the ultimate freedom, was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ on Golgotha where we learn from the scriptures it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So we are thankful for those men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice, but above all, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that we must live our lives by focusing upon him. So as we begin this study, we pray that that might become more of a reality in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, where we are going to focus on what it means to be occupied with Christ. Fundamentally, what we're focusing on today is knowing Christ, because that is where it starts. Putting the ING on the verb indicates a process. So how do we come to know Jesus Christ, because Scripture says we we have to know him in order to love him, and that we love him though we do not see him. So our love for Christ is much like someone, a couple who develops a love for one another simply on the basis of what is revealed in their uh, letters to one another sight unseen. And in previous generations, that was much more common uh, than it is today. So we've been looking at these spiritual skills. Uh, These spiritual skills are laid out in in this chart in a way that demonstrates or shows their relationship to one another as we study the scriptures line upon line and precept upon precept. We grow, and we don't grow in a static way where you uh, 
uh, first accomplish uh, one, and then you work on the next one, and then you work on the next one. Spiritual growth, like growth in any area of knowledge and any area of life, is a dynamic process. Uh, It's not a one-size-fits-all. We learn and grow in and through circumstances which give us the opportunity to apply uh, what we learn from God's Word. And at any point in our lives, the messages from the pulpit that we're studying may focus on one aspect or another aspect, and so we learn those in, diff- in a different order. And the, But these are the fundamentals. The lower t- uh, two or three lines are foundational to everything else. But that doesn't mean that our love for God isn't developing while we are still developing a comprehension of God's grace. And it doesn't mean that our occupation with Christ, our focus on Christ is not developing because uh, from the moment we are saved and start to study God's word, we begin to orient our thinking to the word of God, which is doctrinal orientation. And as we do that, we're learning some about who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. And so we are beginning to lay the foundation there. I think some people over the years have heard this and they think, well, I do this and then I do that and I'm not doing very good here, so I must be at this lower level. And and that misunderstands the illustration. It is all of these are developed in a more uh, dynamic, dynamic way. So as we grow... The thing that we develop later on, because to have love, we have to have knowledge. Love is based on, first of all, a knowledge of God. As we learn about God, we realize that that is grounded in grace. To understand the grace of God is demonstrated in his love, whereby he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. As that verse should be translated, as I've pointed out many times, for God loved the world in this way. The so is misplaced and misunderstood. It's not that he loved us so much. You'll often hear people say that, but that God loved us in this way. And then you get the illustration. He sent his only begotten son. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. So as we come to understand God's love for us, we reciprocate that. And then we come to realize that in this, this, uh, this dispensation of the church, Christ, who is the head of the church, has given us a mandate that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And this is the sign or token of the church age. By this, he says, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we grow in that area. But a third area of love is uh, what we call occupation with Christ, because that is developing Uh, personal love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is going to develop at the same time we are developing our personal love uh, for God. For one cannot love God the Father without also developing in love for the other two members of the Trinity. 
So these three work and function together, and that's why we spent a lot of time over the last uh, four or five lessons developing our understanding of what biblical love is, that it is a mental attitude. It is not an emotion. The world can only define emotion, I mean, can only define love in terms of emotion, which is what you'll find if you pick up any dictionary. But the Bible does not define love in terms of an emotion. It, de- it defines love in the, in the way of, of how you think and how that thinking is then transferred into action. And the result of this then becomes a realization of the fullness of Christ's joy. But that joy, that inner happiness that we have is developing all the way through this process. But as I will point out in Romans 12, we see that this, uh, along with a verse in a parallel passage in James 1, uh, indicates that joy is the ultimate product of this spiritual growth. So we have been studying in Ephesians, of which this is a topical study on love, and it is it really grows out of this section that we we were studying, starting at about Ephesians four seventeen. When we get down to Ephesians five two, we read that we are to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us. Now, I want you to think about that. What is this saying? What is the structure of thought in this verse? First of all, we have a command that we are to walk in love. Now, we have to understand the metaphor there that walking is a metaphor for how we live our life. It picks up on the idea of something we do step by step. So there is a procedure and a process in terms of spiritual growth, and it is done step by step. It's not fast. You can't rush it. Uh, It's not something that is accomplished in a hurry because we have to go through life's circumstances in order to apply what we learn. But based on what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, uh, as he is uh, reprimanding the Corinthian believers for their failure to reach maturity, uh, he says that, that they sh- he has to talk to them like babies, spiritual babies, because they haven't matured yet. And this is roughly three years later. So there is a reality here. Most people think of spiritual maturity as something unrealistic or idealistically advanced, but it is an understanding of uh, and being able to function on the basis of, of of a lot of basics and taking responsibility for the choices that you make in life and choosing to uh, apply the word and make the and hide the word in your heart. Basics like that, and so as a result of that. Uh, we are to have a life characterized by love. That is what um, Paul means here, walk in love. And then he gives us a pattern, as Christ also has loved us. So to fulfill the command to walk in love, what do you have to do? You have to know something about how Christ loved us. 
you can't very well love according to a pattern if you're ignorant of the pattern. So we have to learn something about Christ. We have to know who he is. Now, we live in a world in the late or early 21st century, but this really started a lot earlier. You can trace some of these ideas back even into uh, the 19th century, where there it was developed a very superficial view of love. I think perhaps this really began to develop in the early 19th century in the era of what is called Romanticism and where the shift occurred, uh, putting more emphasis on emotion rather than knowledge. And this was especially seen in the, um, in the liberal theology that developed in Germany during this time. Uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher is recently described as the father of liberal Protestantism. And by that time, due to the attacks on Christianity, a lot of your uh, academics in Germany had rejected uh, any truth in Scripture. They rejected it as the Word of God. They no longer believed in an objective truth or an objective knowledge. And so uh, with that in mind, he basically came to the conclusion, well, we really can't trust anything in the Bible. We don't know if it's true or not. The only thing we can do is rely upon this inner God consciousness that we have. And the way we do that is to focus on some sort of emotional validation. And so those ideas that he came up with have have really filtered through a lot of Christian religion and through our culture and is bearing fruit today in that most people operate on emotion and not on logical or rational thought. And we live in an era of, of, um, of where our thinking has gone to seed and it is pure subjectivism and has produced a form of mysticism. And that is how many Christians operate and how they think. You know, we have the hymn, uh, He Lives. Great hymn in many ways, but when you get to the chorus, He Lives. How do I know He Lives? Because he lives within my heart. No, that's not how we know he lives. We know he lives because the Bible says so. The Bible tells me so. That's our basis for for knowing it. It's not subjective emotion. It is an objective reality. So to walk in love, we have to understand some things about Jesus Christ. And this command in Ephesians 5.2 is based on what we've been seeing and studying the last three or four lessons, that as Jesus is about to leave the upper room and he is talking to his disciples, he tells them that he's giving them a new commandment. This is, a, this is not just a reiteration of the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 19.18 that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. He gives a new pattern. He gives himself as the model, as the exemplar of this kind of love. And he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, not just your neighbor. This is restricted to the body of Christ, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, we have to spend a lot of time thinking about how did Christ love us? What did he do? He First of all, we've been studying in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, uh, the, the uh, 
demonstration of humility by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is one of the key passages, really, for understanding occupation with Christ because the opening verse in Philippians 2.5 is to uh, have this thinking in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So again, we're forced to think about who Jesus Christ is and what he did in order to understand that that humility, and that's what that passage is all about, and we've been studying that in our Philippian study on on Tuesday night. So we have to be able to understand these things about Christ. So he says that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And that whole section in Philippians, as we've been studying, is about humility, and even though it doesn't use the word love, it is talking about what, how those believers are to uh, interact with one another on the basis of humility and not on the basis of self-absorption and arrogance. And in verse 35, Jesus said, By this, that is our love for one another, that everyone will know that you are my disciples. And I keep saying this because this is a huge area of confusion. You can read any number of good men on most theological subjects, but they get here and they say that all all believers are disciples and all disciples are believers. And, and that's just wrong. A disciple in the context is one who goes beyond, grows beyond simply being saved. And so uh, not, uh, whereas all disciples are believers, not all believers are disciples. So in John fifteen twelve, just two chapters later, Jesus reiterated this to his disciples, and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And here he foreshadows what will happen the next day. He says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so that gives us something to contemplate as we talk about how do we know Christ. So we want to look at this topic as a spiritual skill because it takes time and effort and practice to be focused on Jesus Christ. About Starting about 20 years ago, um, there was a a very good statement that Christians came across that unfortunately became trivialized and it was put on bracelets or on T-shirts and other things of that nature. And it was, uh, you would see just the initials, WWJD. What would Jesus do? But that reflects a very solid truth. Many years ago, I had a friend who got married. He and his wife got married. And um, they had not been married very long when they had a bit of a argument and disagreement about something. And she was telling me afterwards, says, it was just so frustrating here. I was ready to argue. And he was just staring off into space, lying on the bed. And I said, what are you thinking about? He says, I'm trying to figure out how Jesus would handle this. But that's basically what we're supposed to be doing with every issue in life. 
But to figure out how Jesus would handle something, we really have to be intimate with the scriptures to understand things. Because most people look at it so superficially that when they read the Gospels without having some sort of dispensational framework to begin with, they don't understand some of the distinctions between what is said uh, at the beginning of Matthew, for example, as Jesus was teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. He is not... Uh, he is not giving a kingdom rule other than in relation to he's still at that stage where he's announcing the coming of the kingdom. He's giving his interpretation of the Mosaic law in contrast to the legalistic interpretation of the Mosaic law given by the, by the Pharisees. And he's talking to his disciples who are believers. He's not talking to a mixed audience. It's very clear, and most people miss it because it gives them some difficulty later on in chapter, uh, chapter 7. Uh, Jesus took his disciples, and they left the crowd. They went aside to a mountain, and he began to teach them. So he's giving truth for believers in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's very important to, uh, to understand that. But most people take these passages about blessed are the peacemakers and turning, turning the other cheek completely out of context because without a dispensational understanding and an understanding of Jesus coming to offer the kingdom and then his rejection and postponement of the kingdom, they don't have an interpretive uh, context whereby they can arrive at the right understanding there, so they misapply it. In other ways, they just sort of pick and choose what verses they're going to apply that come out of Jesus' mouth without really paying attention to their context or understanding what Jesus is talking about. And so the result is a very distorted view of Jesus. What happened in liberalism, which was following a lot of those that path in the 19th century, was before long they realized that none of this really made sense. And so they said, well, we just have a lot of myth and legend about Jesus here in the Gospels. We have to find out who the historical Jesus was. The historical Jesus in liberal thinking is not the biblical Jesus. That confuses a lot of people because you and I think that Jesus of the Bible is the historical Jesus. Who knew? It's not. They have to make it up out of whole cloth, which is exactly what liberalism has done. So it's very confusing. So we need to understand some of the things that Scripture teaches about who Jesus is, what he did, so that we can understand what love is. And that's just a the beginning of learning to think about life the way Jesus thinks about life. So the key Scriptures are found in these four passages— 2 Peter 3.18, Hebrews 12.1-4, through 4, and 1 Peter 1.8, and then Philippians 2.5-11. Now, because I've spent a lot of time on Philippians 2.5-11 on Tuesday night, we won't spend that much time on it uh, on Sunday morning. But we need to look at these other passages, and we'll look at them in this order. At the close of his... Uh, second epistle, the Apostle Peter concludes by saying, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. I want to make a comment and start at the rear. The last statement he makes is to him. Here it's reflecting Jesus because that's the immediate reference prior to this. Be the glory both now and forever. As Christians, we need to come to a point where we understand that the purpose for our life is to glorify God. That is a term that is somewhat ambiguous to a lot of people. They're not sure what it means to glorify God. I remember as a young believer talking to some unbeliever, skeptic, and saying that we're the purpose for our life is to glorify God, and his response was, well, why does God need all the glory? It seems like he's just all about him. And I wasn't mature enough or knowledgeable enough to say, well, yes, it is. It's all about him, but it's not all about him in a selfish way. It's all about him because it is only in him that we have life and that everything has meaning and purpose. It is not some sort of selfish, self-absorbed, arrogant thing that God has. It is because of the way he created all things. And that applies to everything. And a lot of times we don't think about this. A lot of Christians don't think about this. But most of you have some sort of job, some sort of employment. We'll get to that in a little bit in our study of Ephesians 4, that, um, that we are to work in such a way that it brings glory to God. But a lot of people just don't think about what they're doing on a day-to-day business as being something that is central to their spiritual life and spiritual growth. How you function as an employee is to glorify God, recognizing that you're not in that job to just serve the person you work for, but you're there to serve uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That in your areas of entertainment, that we are to glorify God. In areas of our relationships, uh, starting with our marriage, the purpose of marriage is not so we have a partner in life with whom we have compatibility so that we can live our lives together and enjoy the details of life. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God together and that the ultimate purpose for that union between a man and a woman is to glorify God, going back to the original purpose as laid out in Genesis chapters uh, 1 through 3. Uh, the woman was created to, as a helper for the man. And now if you just take that out of context, then you lose a lot of its significance. The man was given a responsibility to be a, uh, a ruler in God's place over the creation of God and to rule it. And they were to rule it together as the two who were created in the image and likeness of God. And then God knew that that was not going to be completely fulf- uh, fulfillable by, by uh, just two individuals. So he said, you have to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And to, in other words, in order to fully take dominion or to rule over over the planet. So that's your foundation for understanding why there's a marriage. And that when you have a husband and a wife 
who are both focused on that ultimate goal together of glorifying God, then a lot of the things that come up that often create friction or difficulty between a, in, in a marriage uh, between two people uh, sort of disappear because you both have to subordinate your personal desires to uh, God's priorities. And as that happens, then you're able to surmount uh, differences together in a way that does not happen in uh, typical marriages. So we are to grow in order to do this in by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. One other thing about glorifying is we we have to understand what that means to give glory to God what it means to glorify God, what the word glory means. Uh, The word in the Hebrew has the idea of something that is heavy, something that is weighty. And so uh, talking about the physical meaning, it then transferred to things and to thoughts, things and people that are important, that are weighty, that are significant. And so a person's uh, glory often was became a term for their attributes, their essence, for who they are, and their significance. And so when we glorify God, what we are doing is demonstrating in our lives the significance or the importance or the value of God in being able to live well and to live successfully. And when we have our work life and our marriage life, our family life, other areas of life that are disconnected from God's character and God's attributes, then we're not being the kind of believer that God is expecting. We're not glorifying him in each and every aspect of life by showing that God is significant and relevant and important to every single area of our life. We have this area that's spiritual and this other area that is somehow divorced from that. So that's the end game of this verse. And it starts with this command to grow. This is the uh, Greek word auxano, which is a standard word for that you would use in agriculture if you're out and you plant seeds and then the uh, plant is watered and fed and begins to grow and development. So it is used both for physical growth and spiritual growth. And it is um, used in ways where it relates to growing in power, growing in strength, growing in the Lord, different aspects like that. But here it is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And first of all, what we see here is sort of an instrumental or means idea. Well, how do I grow? Well, you grow by means of grace and by means of knowledge. Uh, Just as a plant grows by means of water and by means of of, uh, nutrients in food. And we grow physically by means of food and by means of water. So we are to grow by understanding grace. Well, that takes us back to our uh, uh, one of our fundamental principles of grace orientation, learning to align our thinking on the basis of God's grace. And then knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, and we know there's a difference between gnosis and epinosis. Epinosis indicates 
a more uh, intimate uh, knowledge of God. But gnosis is the broader word, so that epinosis is sort of a subset in terms of being a, uh, a synonym. And so this would include both. We have to learn facts. We have to learn some basic things about who Jesus is. And then that has to grow as a result of our walk by the Spirit. We walk by means of the Spirit, and he produces fruit. It takes a plant a long time to produce fruit. There's a lot of growth that has to take place before you begin to see see uh, fruit. So we grow by means of grace, so we have to come to understand what grace is. And we don't want to make the mistake, as a Catholic uh, friend once told me, well, you're earning a lot of grace. Within Roman Catholic theology, grace has been redefined in a way that it includes works. But that's not what the Bible teaches, that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. So we can't include works in our definition of grace. So we have to come to understand that we are to deal with people on the basis of God's grace as demonstrated in Christ, that he sent his son to die for people who were antagonistic, hostile, and obnoxious to God's righteousness. That means that in life we're going to run across people who make choices we don't like, who are obnoxious to us, who are hostile to us or antagonistic to us in one way or another, and do things and act in ways and think and express ideas that we disagree with. So we have to deal with them in grace. That doesn't mean that you put them out of your life. But you, you, you don't exercise grace by loving them from afar because God didn't love us from afar. He sent his son to die on the cross for us and live in the midst of of a rebellious and stiff-necked people who are going to crucify him. That's the pattern. So we have to understand the grace that is manifested in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that only comes as we come to know him. He is the focal point. Ephesians 4.15, passage we've already covered, where we're told that... um, Uh, speaking the truth in love may grow up. I'm just focusing on that part of the verse that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So our spiritual growth is related to Christ as our authority and and growing uh, into uh, in our position in Christ and understanding that. And as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, then when we ask questions like, what would Jesus do? We can answer it more accurately because we have come to know him because we understand the word of God and we understand what Jesus taught and why he taught what he did the way he did and we understand what Jesus came to do. But if you don't answer those questions correctly, then all you're doing is creating your own image, your own idea of who Christ is, and then you're genuflecting at the idol, the mental idol that you've created in your mind, 
which is what a lot of Christians end up doing because they have not grown in knowledge. They have no knowledge of what the Bible says about about Jesus. So we have to really get to know Jesus, and we only get to know Jesus as we get to know his word. Because in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that we have uh, the mind of Christ. And so that is one of our uh, basic verses that we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 2.16, that we have the mind of Christ. That's the word of God. And so the way you get to know who uh, Jesus is is because you know his thinking, and that's the word of God. Now we come to one of our key passages, which is in Hebrews chapter 12, and uh, especially verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there is so much in that, that verse. But the one thing I want to point out here is that this verse completes the thought of the first verse. So we can't take it out of context. So it's a conclusion. It's a conclusion after verse after chapter 11 where the writer of Hebrews has gone through this list of all of these different Old Testament uh, heroes who were heroes because at one point in their life, they may have made many, many mistakes. They may have sinned in many different ways along the way like Samson. But at one point, they trusted in God. And so they are witnesses of God's faithfulness in terms of their trust for him. And that's why he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses to the faithfulness of God. He then gives a twofold command that's linked together. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, one point we'll see there is that this is talking about the sins that easily trap us and we easily succumb to. Uh, it, it, it's not like it's not including all the other ones that we sometimes succumb to, but it's talking about the primary ones that we are typically trapped by. And let us run with endurance. So it's using that race metaphor for the spiritual life. We're to run with endurance. Now, look at that word endurance. It's the Greek word hupomane which is the cognate to the verb that we find in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, author and actually the completer or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So we run a race with endurance, and the illustration of endurance is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand what it means to look unto Jesus, again, it's a word having to do with a mental focus. So next time, as we develop our understanding of 
what it means to be occupied, to have our minds occupied with Christ. So no matter what you're doing, that's always a, a thought in the background. How does this glorify the Lord? So we'll come back and begin to look at Hebrews 12 next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we are thankful that as we look at Scripture, we realize that the focal point is always about you because you are our creator. You are the one who loves us in such a way that you sent your only begotten Son to go to the cross and to die for us, that this is the ultimate example of what love is, that he died for us. He went through all of that suffering. He endured the cross, the shame of a criminal's death upon the cross because what was involved there was a spiritual transaction where he paid the penalty for the sin of mankind and all of the sins of mankind, that there was no sin left unpaid for. And therefore, we have a complete salvation. He's described as the completer of our faith with the same word that he used when he finished. It is finished. It is completed. All is done, so all that is left is to trust in him for salvation. But that's just the starting point. That's the beginning as we begin to uh, learn what it means to be saved, learn what it means that Christ died for us, learn all the different facets of the cross, that we may come to understand more and more who Jesus is because we have the mind of Christ in the Scriptures and that we can go to the scriptures for clarity and to understand what it means to focus upon the Lord. Father, we pray for each of us that we might be able to run the race with endurance, that you might be glorified. We pray for those who may not be saved yet, who are still thinking about salvation or perhaps have just now learned what it means to Uh, be saved, to believe the gospel that Christ died on the cross for our sins, and that by believing we have everlasting life. We pray that you would make that very clear to those who need salvation. And Father, for us, as we go through the next day or so living in this country, that we might take some time to just reflect and show our gratitude to you for the fact that we live in such a nation where Uh, freedoms that are our unalienable rights granted to us by you, our creator, are enshrined in our founding documents that we might have a great degree of civil political freedom and that we might remember those who gave their lives for us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.